Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey, this is Natalie with Gunderson's Future Work Playbook. Today's episode focuses on the role mental health plays in ESG. This episode is near and dear to my heart as we have seen so many personal struggles over the past few years through the pandemic. I can't imagine a better guest to discuss this topic than Dr. Bonnie Forrest. She is a renowned psychologist who brings a unique perspective to our clients in the startup space. Bonnie is a former big law litigator and then became in-house counsel at Merrill Lynch. She later earned her PhD in psychology from Columbia and completed a postdoc fellowship at Yale. She is also a coach and mentor to many of our nation's top lawyers, where she sees high stress and mental health struggles up close. Bonnie, it is so good to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this topic and to talk to you about this topic. Thank you. Awesome. So let's go ahead and uh, dive right in. So we are talking about ESG and we want to focus on the S, the social pillar. Can you provide us a high-level summary of why mental health is now being considered perhaps as a standalone pillar as opposed to something that's part of the S? When ESG was developed, social was really one of the less developed areas, although certainly things like diversity and inclusion were found in organizations What all this encompassed was certainly a little bit less defined. Environmental was pretty well defined. Governance was pretty well defined. Social came along and it was sort of a hodgepodge at some level of things or efforts that fit into well-being or more broadly, I conceptualize it as human capital. How do we help people be their best is really most broadly how I think about the social and ESG. Yes. What, with your focus on mental health in particular, seems to be many who are moving to almost have like an ESHG model to better incorporate health. And uh, why why do you think that is now that we've made more progress in better defining what might be part of the S? So a couple questions are embedded in there, Natalie. So you'll stop me if I'm going in a direction you didn't want to go to, but I get really excited about this. So let me start by saying, I think health in general, the pandemic certainly brought up for employers, we need to be focusing more on mental health and health in general because we have five generations in the workplace now, and we have the younger two generations or three generations who are really demanding that from employers. We've seen full circle where employers sort of loosen the relationship, and now we see younger generations coming to the workplace and say, we want balance. We want mental health to be part of the focus. So one, it was how to get and retain talent. Two, it's the good thing to do for business because organizations that 
focus on health and mental health actually show better progress and better profits long-term. And we can unpack that a bit more. But also, I think um, organizations like Deloitte and other companies were calling for, let's focus on health more broadly, and let's really define it, make people accountable, accountable, and measure it. So all of those things, I think, are what led to an increased call for the H, but also people focusing on mental health as we had all this data, all these data come out of the pandemic that said people were depressed and not engaged and sad. And how do we flip that and turn that into a positive and create positive programs that can support our workforce? I completely agree with you, Bonnie. It really does seem like leadership and organizations are taking a more proactive approach to well-being promotion and intervention, if you will, it does seem that this transformation has been accelerated by the pandemic's impact on the global workforce. And if that's something positive to come out of the experience, I think that's a good thing. You've worked with a number of organizations. So what kinds of programs or efforts are you currently seeing inside companies that that might better support this notion of mental health as its own standalone pillar? So I think organizations are just sort of tiptoeing in this, although there are a couple of big name companies like Pepsi that has worked on mindset and Microsoft that has been working on thriving. What I'm seeing is companies just dipping their toe into a more proactive program. For example, burnout. Burnout has gotten a lot of attention lately. Um, and people have to work a lot of hours. When you're working at home, it's very hard to set boundaries. The day seems to go on forever. And how do you do that? How do you support employees um, at all levels from what I call the mailroom to the boardroom to bring their best self and not be focused on burnout? That's one. Certainly, I've designed in the last year a couple of programs that have a la carte menus for employee retention, meaning you might want to trade off less on salary for having a more flexible schedule, or you want to work on a certain type of account, or you want to have certain other things. So the employee relationship, employee-employer relationship certainly takes on a different sort of, I want to do this but you have to understand there are trade-offs and making that explicit. I've certainly seen those programs. So burnout, more flexibility. I've seen a few organizations start to tiptoe into depression. I think that that one's a little scary for employers. That's traditionally been something that people say no, no, and not people are not trained in it. Mental health providers are few and far between these days. But I'm certainly starting to get the phone calls. Bonnie, how would you help us design program along the lines of thriving or engagement, or how do we support people bringing their best selves to work? So those are three examples, burnout, depression, and more comprehensively sort of thriving and how do we engage everybody? Those are the sorts of programs, or how do we be flexible so we can engage everybody? Those are the sites of programs I'm starting to see asked about more than once. I think it helps explain why why we're we are seeing the thousands of the signatories to the UN's principle for responsible investment have indicated that mental health, including all the issues you just outlined, uh, should be 
or definitely there needs to be more efforts to make it a top social issue. And, and we see them starting to prioritize that more for sure. Certainly. Let me jump in there one second, Natalie. I think that's really important. McKinsey did a study, I think it was 70% of employees wanted mental health addressed or some figure like that. But it's the right thing to do, but I also really can't stress enough, and I think this is where employers have been a little bit behind the ball and where I think that the growth area is, that you focus on for every $1 you invest in these sorts of programs, you're saving between two and four. So yes, you should do it because it's the right reason, but your workforce is going to be so much more engaged and thriving if you collect the right data, do the right things, and do an evidence-based program, and you're going to have better retention. It's just, you know, it, it, it's a penny-wise, pound-foolish sort of argument. This is going to save you money. It's also the right thing to do. I love that. There's no question that physical and mental wellness of people in a workplace has a direct impact on organizational performance. So I'm, I'm glad you made that point, Bonnie. This season, we're speaking quite a bit about ESG metrics, and we're seeing ESG metrics beyond the more commonly recognized environmental pillar continuing to pick up momentum. If you were to think about outlining metrics, you know, sticking with this issue of mental health, what kind of metrics could be outlined if if we were to take that separately as in terms of a pool of ESG metrics? So let me think about this, um, how I design. I'm I'm a data person and a researcher um, by background as well. So I tend to take this as an applied research problem. And when I go into an organization, I'm designing a program right now for a, a company And we're going to actually take a look at their culture. They feel that their culture has changed significantly because of the pandemic. And you've got a whole part of the workforce that really wasn't acculturated and wasn't really there or able to pick up some of the values. So we're going to take a look and assess that. There are instruments I'm certified and a couple instruments that assess culture. So we're going to look at that, especially where they are on their growth horizon. So this is a fairly new organization, they're entrepreneurial, they don't want to lose that, but they need to go to the next level and probably get more systems in place. Then we're going to look at well-being and thriving. Like I talked about, there is a way to measure that and there are evidence-based measures and you can look at that and you can look at that over time relatively quickly. And we're also going to look at well-being in terms of can you bring your best self to work? Do you feel psychologically safe to be able to Talk to your team. Do you feel like somebody has your back? For example, for years, one of the biggest indicators from Gallup of doing well at work is whether you have a best friend. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to have their best buddy at work, but do you have somebody who can share challenges with and disappointments and talk things through? Not talking after the meeting bad about people, but really talking ideas through and thinking things proactively as a way, thinking things through proactively as a way to be more productive. Those are some specific measures that I'm looking at right now, and I've I've got others, but those three, I think for most organizations would be a, an incredible start. That's fantastic. Bonnie, talk about, I've been calling you Bonnie, is that all right, Shake? I can call please. you Dr. Forrest. No, no, no. I <laughs> okay. Don't stand on ceremony about that. Thank you for asking. Okay. 
this notion of a best friend or a good friend at work, having that kind of connection, do you think that uh, that much of that has, has perhaps been lost as we've become more remote and distributed? And, and, and I would imagine that that is adding to some of the mental health challenges that we've seen in the workforce. Absolutely. You have to affirmatively make time and seek somebody out online. Whereas just being in the office and stopping by somebody's door and say, let's chat or grabbing somebody to go grab a bite or a a cup of coffee in the afternoon to talk things through, incredibly important. That's why I think I've also seen a lot more companies go after proactively coaching programs and leadership programs. And that I think is two reasons. One, Leadership coaching and mentoring traditionally has often been done by people who were mentors in the organization without any formal training. And while those people are extremely helpful to the organization and bring something to that relationship that's incredible, people are now starting to understand that, hey, leadership is actually, there are people like myself who have been trained in leadership. And there are very real principles that when applied can make you more productive and can take somebody from a B player performer or a C player performer to the next level and support them in a way that just having, you know, a pat on the back doesn't. So I think one, mentoring programs and sponsorship programs are increasing. And number two, the professionalism and the professionalization of those programs is really happening at a, at a meteoric meter at a very fast pace because people are understanding there's a whole science to this, not just about being a best buddy. But being a, having somebody to talk to, no matter what level in the organization, with formal training or not, is also incredibly important. Absolutely. Now, you work with a number of boards as part of your work. And what are you finding, just more broadly speaking, is one of the bigger challenges facing boards when it comes to evaluating whether their company is correctly investing in their ESG initiatives? I think ESG exploded on to the market and people came out with lofty goals and now the accountability is happening. So if you're saying you're going to do X, how are you measuring that? And how are you making certain that fits with other priorities in your organization? I think a lot of people put these out there. They put them into nice, shiny pamphlets without thinking about how are we going to measure this and how are we actually going to deliver And oftentimes the promises exceeded what they could probably do. And they also didn't evaluate how each portion of the ESG might impact other other parts of the organization. And so having somebody who really looks at this comprehensively and makes all these pieces fit together and to also be the champion of these things, because they don't happen just willy-nilly overnight. Being the champion, thinking about them um, logically and scientifically and moving them forward, I think that's the biggest challenge that I'm seeing from boards for boards today. That's a great point in terms of having a champion or having somebody who's really focusing on measuring and managing ESG initiatives. So what are you seeing? Are you seeing that it's a certain type of role within a company that's managing ESG initiatives? Are you seeing more task force taking on the responsibility? 
Yes, the answer is yes. What I'm seeing is a hodgepodge right now. I certainly have talked to a number of organizations in the last six, eight months about having a designated person. I think people are understanding it's crucial, especially if you're going to use, again, you should do it in its own right, but using things like culture and well-being to drive strategy within an organization and performance, you need a cheerleader. You need somebody to champion this. People are certainly starting to think about chief well-being officers. I've seen a couple of those. I've seen one or two chief of culture, strategy, and you name it, engagement or thriving. Those are the sorts of titles I'm starting to see. Sometimes it's within HR, but sometimes not because your HR people are really good at understanding that coaching and mental health are really subspecialties and you need somebody who's formally trained, so they want to bring somebody on with that subspecialty. And those are the sorts of titles that I'm starting to see so that you have one person driving this. Have you seen an example of a program, maybe a program that someone that you've worked with is championed that might be working particularly well in terms of ESG in general, or if you have an example of addressing mental health concerns specifically? So I go back to what I said. I don't know if it's part of their ESG program, but I go back to the the data and actually Microsoft, to their credit, has been doing this for a number of years, but um, they've really been doing this thriving research. And they came out uh, with some really impressive data right at the beginning of the pandemic. And they've got their behavioral health people embedded in the operations, which is really how you need to do it. And so they really sort of say, these are the measures that we need to collect along the way. And this is how we, there's a system that you can use called continuous process improvement. And so you look at how things are working you say, no, the data are not good. And you make the data easy to collect so people aren't bound by surveys, but you say, we could introduce this better if we did it this way or that way. And Microsoft's really releasing a lot of real-time data that helps those of us out there that are trying to design these programs and want to design on a smaller scale. They've done some cool things. Pepsi also did a couple of years ago on mindset and trying to drive change in organizations. How do you help leaders have the right mindset to change? Because change is so hard in organizations. And again, there's a set of behavioral principles that can be implemented But how do you do that when organizations tend to sit at the status quo, especially after a pandemic when people are really distributed in faraway corners? And how do you bring teams together to perform at a higher level? Those are the sorts of programs I'm seeing out there without mentioning other specific names. I'm working. I'd like to think I'm working on two or three that are really trying to do it differently and think out of the box. And I think in the next year or two, we're going to see some interesting data coming out of those programs. Those are great examples. And it's wonderful to know that what's being measured, that the data that comes out from those examples of programs making a difference are being shared so that others can can learn and benefit from those examples. So thank you for those. Yes. Mental health is continuing. I, I think you're right, dipping their toe, and uh, hopefully we'll see more examples, but as it continues to make its way into the ESG discussion, how do you think companies and boards can best either prepare or make headway to prioritize it uh, across other priorities? Well, first of all, I'd listen to your, to your 
staff and your employees because they're going to tell you what they want and need. And most of them in employee surveys will let you know. Start small, pick one or two, and then go from there. I would start with something like employee well-being. That's amorphous enough that it can include a number of things from employee surveys, but it's also you can pick measures out there and say, this is a well-being measure. Okay, and we can look at this and we can then take those data and say, this is what we need to improve on. And this is what, more importantly, we're doing well. What are we doing well and how do we capitalize on what we're doing well? And how do we just make two or three interventions that become habits for people so nobody has to engage in large scale change? But just what are two or three habits that I could incorporate into my day that make it a better place for my team to work. Let me be really specific about that. We did a survey a few years ago of a number of people in an organization and say, be the best practices for leading and managing a team within this certain industry. And we, we said, okay, now identify within this group the 10 people who you think are the best leaders and why. Why did they bring out your best in performance? And we got down to four or five. And then we found out it was very simple habits. So for example, when somebody gives an assignment, they give you the assignment, they give you the big picture in the assignment. So you feel like you can bring meaning and value to the overall picture. Then they check in along the way and say, hey, do you need anything else? How can I support you in this assignment? So we had one leader, for example, in a 360 review who just built in that phone call scheduled two or three days after they gave the assignment to check in. Very simple habit, very short, critical intervention. This person's team performance bumped up and his leadership scores bumped up. Very simple routine, became a habit, very concrete. It took well-being to another level but it took it to the took it down to the level of a, a daily habit or something concrete that could change performance and increase the perform the team's performance. That's the sort of thing you're looking for. What great advice. I love that. Start small, two or three interventions, use specific examples by identifying individuals for a pilot type program and and see where it leads, hopefully to good habits and stronger bottom lines for organizations and and better well-being in the workplace in general. Let me add one component to that, Natalie, if I can. I also think organizations, one thing, organizations shy away these days. They're fearful of conflict. And I, I think that we have to be, as organizations become more diverse, you should expect more conflict and expect more pushback. We've got to work with our workforce to understand how to resolve conflict because being able to have difficult conversations and resolve conflict is the high performance rocket fuel of teams. And if you can't Mm. do that, you're not going to get to the next level. And as you increase diversity inclusion, you're going to have difference of opinions. You hope that's what you want. So how are you going to work those through in a way that's productive and becomes better for the team? So I would also really impress upon organizations when they try these efforts, expect some pushback, change is hard, know how to deal with that and build that into whatever you're going to do. Extremely important. What a fantastic point for us to 
end on. And I'm going to remember that one managing difficult conversations is a rocket fuel of teams. And it's so true. It, you know, nobody said it was going to be easy, but it'll be worth it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Bonnie, do you mind if I end our episode by engaging you in a quick fire challenge to help our audience get to know you a little better? Please, please. Looking forward to this. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. Three questions in this quick fire. What is an extreme sport or activity you've tried? Uh, I recently came back from trekking in the Himalayas. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that that is an extreme activity. It was amazing. It was amazing. (laughs) That's wonderful. What are three things, this is number two, what are three things you enjoy about where you currently live? The ocean, the warm and mild climate and weather, and the cultural scene. Sounds perfect. Last question. If you could add two hours to the day, would you rather have two extra hours in the morning or in the evening? Ooh, that's a tough one. I can't split it, huh? Got to go with all for none. I'm going to have to go for morning, but I don't know. I'm already an early morning riser at four or five. I start my days. So I don't know if there's much more. So don't, uh, I'm not the best model for work-life balance right now, but yes, morning. I'm a morning person. Okay. Same, same. Okay. Well, I love those answers. So thank you for speaking us with us. Thank you for speaking with us today, Bonnie. Such an important discussion. We loved having you. Thank you so much for having me. And most importantly, Natalie, for your vision and your willingness to talk about these things in a proactive way and sort of lead the market and lead us into a discussion and thinking about these important topics. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us and be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for the rest of the season and to listen to our previous season's episodes. Wishing you all well. Thank you. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.